Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning. It's so good to be back with you guys. Glad that you're all here. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Chris, and uh, it's, it's an honor, truly an honor for me to be here. If you're watching online, good to see you as well. So glad that you're joining us this morning. Hey, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it open to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to look in just a bit, Colossians 3. Um, you guys have been in this series for uh, the past several weeks just talking about the book of Colossians, studying verse by verse through the book of Colossians, and you're kind of calling this series Colossians Christ is is enough. And that's such a great title for this series and for kind of a, a, the theme of the book of Colossians because that's really what it is. It's kind of this, this idea, Paul says over and over in, in various ways, how Christ is indeed enough. And, uh, and so the book of Colossians kind of helps us work through like what would it look like in our lives, in every domain of our lives, from uh, the relationships that we have, our friendships, our marriages, relationships with our kids, relationships with our parents, uh, from the way we interact with our jobs, uh, the way we schedule our days, the way we handle our money, all of those things. What would it look like in our lives, in every domain, if we really believed, we truly knew and believed that Christ is indeed enough and we lived as though he reigned supreme in all those areas of our lives. And so uh, that's kind of what we've been dealing with over the last several weeks and what we'll take a look at today. Uh, today, what we're going to talk about uh, is dealing with sin in our lives, all right? And so just to kind of get our minds thinking that direction, I want to remind you of something that you all know about unless you've been hiding under a rock somewhere. Uh, do you remember back in um, 2016, there was a story of a, uh, a gorilla in the Cincinnati Zoo named Harambe. You remember that story? And a child, a three-year-old, had fallen off into the gorilla enclosure. Uh, and this 440-pound western lowland gorilla, Harambe, was kind of grabbing this child and throwing this child around. And so you remember the story. Uh, the people at the zoo thought, man, if we don't take care of this, this child's going to die, right? And so their, their mentality was, we've got to kill this gorilla before the gorilla kills the child. Now, I don't want to go political here. We're not talking about whether we believe that was true or not or whatever. That's not the point. The point was their rationale for what they did, the decision they made, was they've got to kill the gorilla or the gorilla will kill the child. And the reality is that's exactly the way that sin is in our lives. In fact, John Owens, a, a theologian, he said this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, the reality, though, with sin in our lives, and we kind of know that's true, the reality with sin in our lives is when it comes to Jesus and sin, we often think that Jesus or the gospel or the good news of the cross is kind of his, in salvation, is kind of his responsibility. But when it comes to killing sin in our lives, that's sort of our responsibility, right? We think that the, the, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is sort of like the runway in the Christian life. Like we need it at the beginning of the Christian life for salvation. We need it to land at the end of the Christian life for heaven. But then everything in the middle is sort of on us. Our sanctification, our killing of sin is sort of on us. We sort of lay down the gospel or the good news of Jesus and sort of pick up works somehow when it comes to killing sin in our lives. We lay down grace and we pick up works. Um, in fact, I, man, that's been so true of my journey as a follower of Jesus. Um, when I was eight years old, I knelt at about right here uh, in the, at the altar at the little church I went to. It's called Larkinsville Baptist Church. The little church I went to, about 80 people or so. Uh, I was eight years old. The preacher was preaching on Daniel, uh, and it was a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I thought, I was from Alabama, right? So I thought he was saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abilly Goat. All right, give me a little, little grace, Alabama, all right? 
Uh, and, but nevertheless, that compelled me. Uh, the gospel grabbed my heart, and I knelt there and gave my heart to Jesus that day. But almost immediately, like I couldn't have articulated this as an eight-year-old child, but almost immediately I stood up from that altar and then kind of started in this sort of rhythm in my life of trying to prove back to Jesus why I deserved the free gift of salvation that he'd given me. What my mentality was, that was sort of like salvation was his deal, but now when I stand up and start to walk out the Christian life, well, then that's my responsibility, right? And so I sort of felt the weight of that. There were times in my life, uh, and still to this day, times in my life when I'm sort of doing good at taming the beast of Christianity and killing sin, uh, and then I feel, I feel really good about myself. And then the times that I'm not, I feel terrible about myself. And so that mentality kind of leads us on this roller coaster of ups and downs in the Christian life. And many of you felt that way. In fact, uh, students, you're going to camp this week or next week. And often when it comes to going to camp, the, you kind of get, we talk about, and I did student ministry for six years early on. And we'd always talk about the camp high. This, man, we just have the, the camp high all the time. The reason you have the camp high and then it goes away, right, that you sort of hit that low place in the roller coaster of life is because we think it's on us to continue to kill sin, to leash and tame the beast of sin in our lives. Like salvation's Jesus thing, but, but continual sanctification or becoming like Christ, well, that's our deal, right? And so we have these ups and downs of life. And so besides the obvious personal problems with that that I just shared with you, uh, there's another problem with that, and it's called the Bible, all right? Uh, when, you, when you look at the Bible, uh, what you see is that, man, that's, that's not at all the story of the gospel. That's only a poor... If that's all the gospel you know and all the gospel you understand, that's a small little piece of the gospel. The gospel is not just the runway for the Christian life, beginning and end. What the Bible teaches about the gospel and the good news of Jesus is that it's actually the jet fuel that propels everything about the Christian life. And so today what this text is going to do for us in Colossians chapter 3 is it's going to show us how the gospel, how the supremacy of Jesus in our lives is not just good for salvation beginning and end, but it's the jet fuel that propels our growth in Christ that powers every part of the Christian life. It, it doesn't just save us, it also matures us. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So let's go there, all right? Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 5, here we go. If you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All right, those five verses are where we're going to focus our time today. Here's what we often do, right? When we sort of bow and give our hearts to Jesus and then depend on our own works to, to sort of sanctify us, what we're basically doing is we're, we're, we're often, we're starting with verse five. Like what we do is we find areas, by the way, verse 5 said, put to death evil desires in you. Put to death, right? And so what we're doing is we find areas where we miss the mark, where we sort of blow it in life, and we spend all of our energy and all of our efforts to sort of leashing and taming the beast of whatever that thing is, that whatever that sin is in our, in our lives. We sort of somehow will ourselves 
to modify our behavior in those areas. So for example, uh, if I find myself um, missing the mark when it comes to sexual purity in my life, and I find myself engaging in pornography, I kind of think, man, I got to just will myself, I, I just got to stop. I mean, bottom line, I just got to stop. I got to will myself to put to death those things. I got to put to death, I got to leash and tame the beast. I got to kill that sin in my life. And so we say that with pornography. I drink too much. I, I feel like I just have to, man, just pull myself up by my bootstraps and go, I just got to just somehow find the energy in myself to will myself to stop drinking too much. I got to, I got to stop and we feel the sense of shame and, and discouragement. But what this text is actually doing is, this text is actually pointing us away from that kind of mentality. Uh, in fact, the Bible would say there is no condemnation in, in one who follows Jesus. And so this text points us away from that idea. Um, look at verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, uh, impurity, passion. And then the next part, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, Here, Here's what Paul's really getting at. He's saying that the surface level sins, we talked about pornography and drunkenness or, or drinking too much, right? Uh, and so let's just take those things for example. We'll go with pornography on this one, all right? So we, 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 we kind of look at pornography and we go, that's what I have to deal with. But what Paul is actually saying is, that that pornography in my life actually reveals that there is an idol below that pornography that I've got to deal with. If I don't, I'll never fix the pornography problem. I'll never be able to, 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 to kill sin if I, if I don't first figure out what the idol is underneath the pornography. So it's kind of like this. Um, my wife bought me this awesome grill for Father's Day. Let me tell you all a story about a grill I, ha- I had until last week, all right? Um, so I was driving home from community group one night at my, we meet off campus at my church, driving home from community group. And there's this grill on the side of the road. And I'm like, man, that looks, that looks awesome. Uh, I don't have a grill. I should probably, there's somebody's giving that away. That's like the universal sign to stop and pick something up. If it's sitting on the side of the road, like they're giving that away, right? Why are you laughing? That's not funny. Uh, that's true, right? Um, and so, uh, and so I stopped, so I stopped and picked it up. My wife were loading this. It was nice, man. It was like a commercial stainless steel. looked awesome. So we get it home. I'm like, well, that's kind of dirty. So we're cleaning it up. And then it kind of hit me. Like, oh my gosh, what if they were just having a block party? <laughs> and, they, and I just took somebody's grill from their block party. So we literally got it halfway cleaned, loaded it back up. I come to the end of the street that we found it on. <laughs> no, no joke, y'all. No joke turn the lights off <laughs> and ease back up to where I found this grill and, and pick it back up and drop it off. While I'm driving home, I'm thinking, was that the right house? I, mean, I dropped it off in front of the wrong house. They wake up the next day. They're like, hey, where's the grill come from? So, so the next morning, I, so I thought about this all night. This is like one in the morning. I didn't sleep much. The next morning I drive back over there, the guy's outside. And so I said, Hey man, are you giving this grill away? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, I've got a cover inside. Do you want it? And so, like, uh, now I ended up with the grill for the second time and a cover going home. And so I finished cleaning it. We actually used that grill for two years, y'all, for two, until I also left it on the curb for somebody to come pick up. And uh, so, but, so that grill finally died. And my wife bought me this, it's, it's a Traeger grill. It's this pellet grill. It's really nice. Like, but it cooks with indirect heat. 
And so, like, when I'm putting this thing together and trying to figure out this thing, it's, like, it's kind of like a convection oven. It cooks with indirect heat. And so I wasn't exactly sure, like, where, where does the heat come from? So I take this thing off and then take this thing off inside because I was seeing smoke and the smoke was hot, but I didn't know where the smoke was coming from, right? And so I took the thing off, took the other thing off, and oh, there's the fire that the smoke is coming from. This is exactly what Paul's saying right here. He's saying, look, the surface level sin in your life is like smoke from a fire. If you track the smoke back far enough, you'll be able to find the fire of the idolatry that's burning in your life. Um, John, uh, John Calvin said, all of our hearts are idol factories. And what he's saying is that the smoke of sin in our lives is there because the fire of idolatry is burning deep down in our souls. Uh, in other words, if I look at pornography, then there's an idol in my heart that I, that's causing me to look at the pornography. If I lie, it's because I'm bowing down to a, to a flame at which a, a, an idol is burning. And, uh, and I, that flame is more important to me than whatever it is that caused me to lie, right? That I found something that's worth lying for. If I steal, it's because I'm bowing at an idol and I found something that's worth stealing Four, it's, it's when, when I surface level sin, it's because I've set something up in my life that I've cherished above Jesus. He's not reigning supreme in whatever that area is in my life. Under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. It's when we're valuing something more than we value the good gifts of God. In fact, a pastor friend of mine says it this way. He calls idolatry simply disordered delights. It's when we take things that Jesus has given us, because of his good gifts to us, has given us a natural craving to enjoy and to desire. And when we take those desires and disorder them and make those desires the greatest desire over Jesus. In fact, Paul in Romans 1 would say this in Romans 1.25. I don't think it's going to be on the screen. But he says this, because what, what we do is we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. We disorder our desires. Okay, So here's what Tim Keller and Dave Pallison, Tim Keller's a pastor in New York, uh, Dave Pallison's sort of a um, biblical counselor, and they break it down this way when it comes to idolatry in our lives and, and what it is and how we deal with it. They say that actually uh, any kind of idol in our lives can actually be categorized in what they call four root idols. Now, I, I preached uh, something similar to this a couple years ago here, so some of you may remember this, but this is a good reminder because this, this will help us sort of uh, be able to preach the gospel to ourselves more often, all right? And so uh, four root idols. I want to show you what those are, and I want you to try to discover as we talk about what these are, which one you bow down to the most. It's this fire in your life, whatever, whatever one it is, that causes the smoke of surface level sin to bubble out of your heart. All right, so here are the four root idols. First is the idol of approval. It's approval. It's, it's a longing to be liked. It's, it's life only has meaning if I feel approved of and valued. All right, so, so here's some ways you'd know. I'm going to go all Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if right here. You might suffer with the idol, uh, bow the idol of approval if your greatest fear is that someone will reject you, right? You have anxiety almost every day because you're afraid that someone's going to reject you. Um, you struggle with the idol of approval 
if you exaggerate. When you talk about things, you exaggerate in conversation. Uh, even maybe you exaggerate who you are, right? You, you kind of build yourself up to, to seem like you're better than you know you really are. And, and by the way, that, that, that everybody else sees that you're not that too, okay? Um, um, if you crave the praise of people, uh, you struggle with the idol of approval. If in conversation, you're waiting on somebody else to stop talking, and you're not even really paying attention to what they're saying, you're just waiting on them to stop talking so, so you can say what you want to say, uh, you probably struggle with the idol uh, of approval. If people close to you have ever sort of felt smothered by you, you probably struggle with the idol of approval. Um, you, you, you'll do, if you struggle with the idol, you'll do just about anything to make people happy. And so what happens as a result is you kind of live your life as someone who really doesn't have a backbone. You're not willing to take a stand for, for much of anything. Uh, if that's you, you, what you're doing is you're bowing down to the idol of approval. So that's one. That's one root idol in our lives that we often bow down to. Another is the idol of power. And the idol of power is longing, simply longing for influence. It's, it's this idea that life only makes sense if you have authority and power. Uh, and so what happens is it makes everything in life a competition. Like you constantly think, I've got to be better than that guy or that girl or in, in everything. Uh, if that's you, you probably struggle with the idol of, of, of power. And if, if you struggle with the idol and your sense of competition, it's, it's actually not really just about winning. It's about not losing. Because if you struggle with the idol of power and you lose, what, that's ta- what that says to you is that I'm not powerful enough, right? And so if that's you and you're overly competitive and aggressive when it comes to that, you probably struggle with the idol of power. Um, if you gain your sense of identity through being a winner, you probably struggle with the idol of power. And the problem is uh, that there's, there's always somebody that's better than you at something, right? And so when, the minute you don't win, you feel terrible about yourself. If that's you and you've ever experienced that, you struggle with the idol um, of power. Um, people who struggle with the idol of power usually lend themselves toward over-aggression in conversations. People who struggle with the idol of power usually have hot tempers. People who struggle with the idol of power um, usually kind of lend themselves toward violence. And so if you know of a relationship where there's violence in that relationship, the likelihood is that that smoke is pointing back to the flame of the idol of power in someone's life. Okay. Next, the idol of control. The idol of control. That's a longing for things to go my way. You, you, you have to have everything sort of in this box and when, they, when things don't go your way or they're not in that box, life just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, you feel lost. You feel out, obviously out of control. Um, and, and that uncertainty to you is absolutely terrifying. And so what you do is you try to control at the minutia of every situation you find yourself in. The problem is that when you struggle with the idol of control, what happens is people around you feel condemned because that person, uh, they, you, when you struggle with that idol of control, you see that other person um, through the eyes of your own struggle. And so when they don't fit inside of that little box, they, and they're out here somewhere, they feel condemned by you. And so if you struggle with the idol of control, know that people around you probably constantly feel oppressed and, and exasperated and condemned by you. Um, if you've ever said this to someone, and by the way, man, oh man, do I struggle this with, my ki- with this with my kids sometimes. Though I may not always say it, I always think it. 
Sometimes I say it, unfortunately. It's, it's this, this phrase right here. If you've ever said, why can't you just... And then whatever the thing is, uh, you probably struggle with the idol of control in your life. So approval, power, control. And then the last one is comfort or pleasure. And this is, that, that, uh, this is a longing for pleasure that life only has meaning when I've achieved a certain level of comfort, a certain level uh, of pleasure in my life. If you're constantly on the lookout for the next high, right? Uh, I'm not even talking about drugs or, or whatever. If you're constantly on the lookout for the next thing that's fun, that sort of engages you, uh, then you probably struggle with the idol of comfort and, and pleasure. If you're constantly dreaming about the next fun thing to do, uh, you probably struggle with the idol of, of comfort. Um, if, you, if you're someone who says often, or even if you don't say it, you think often, I just feel bored. And just, if you struggle with boredom, you probably struggle with the idol of comfort. What happens is, when you struggle with this idol, um, the, your, all of your relationships are shallow. Because what happens in those relationships is, the other person, not you, the other person sort of becomes a pawn in the game that you're playing to try to find that comfort for yourself or to try to find that pleasure for yourself. And so all of the other relationships in your life become shallow because their job really, at least their perception of their job in your life, is just to give you more pleasure or to give you more comfort. And so it makes your relationships uh, very shallow, right? So those are the four root idols. Surface level sin in your life, whatever it might be. I mean, all right, I'm, I'm going to give us, this will be a little awkward, but it's okay. I'm going to give us five seconds of complete silence in the room. And what I want you to do is in these five seconds, all right, prepare yourself now, all right? So you're not just sitting, sitting you know, with like mindless. Uh, I, for five seconds, I want you to just think inside my own soul and my heart, what's the one sin in my life, the one sin in my life, that I struggle with the most. Now let me preface this by saying, if you sit here and you can't think of something, you're not paying attention in your heart, all right? Uh, Seriously, like you don't have a clear, good picture of the weight of the depravity in your life. If you can't think of something, okay? Uh, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you requires that we have an awareness (laughs) of the sin in our lives, okay? So for five seconds, I want you to think, what's the sin I struggle with the most? And if you can't think of something, you pray, God, would you illuminate the eyes of my my heart, as Paul would say, to show me what those things are. Five seconds, silence. Think. I think that's about five. All right, you've got something in your mind. Bring it to the forefront of your mind right now. Whatever that thing is, is not just standing there in your life by itself. Whatever that thing is, is actually the smoke from the flame of one of these four things, power, approval, control, uh, or comfort or pleasure, okay? And so what we have to do is we have to discover in our, if we're going to be killing sin, we have to discover in our lives which one of these four things we are bowing down to most often. By the way, we all struggle with all four at times. Most of us struggle with one to two of those things in a very rhythmic basis, and sort of the normal flow of our lives. And so we have to discover which one of those four things am I bowing down to instead of sensing and expressing the supremacy of Christ in my life like Colossians talks about. All right, now, let's go. So once we discover what that is, 
Right? Hopefully you've got in your mind not just that sin. Hopefully you've got in your mind now which one of those four idols, root idols, you likely struggle with the most. Hopefully. Keep it in your mind. What Paul does in verse 1, verses 1 and 2 really, is he tells us how to, once, now once they're there, once we know what they are, what do we do about them? Okay, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read that for you one more time. He says this. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What Paul has just told us in those two verses is that, uh, uh, well, yeah, two verses, that really there are two phrases in those two verses that give us sort of the keys that unlock how to deal with those root idols once we discover what they are in our lives. Two phrases. The first phrase is set your minds. He says set your minds on things that are above. Now, let me talk about repentance for just a second, all right? Because what Paul's really getting at here when he says set your minds, he's talking about the idea of repentance. When we think about repentance in our lives, what we often think about is action, okay? Um, Jesus would say in, uh, in the book of Mark, um, the, the kingdom is at hand, the time is now, repent and believe. Remember that, phrase, that, that verse if you've been around church? Repent and believe. And so we often reverse what the real meaning of repent and believe are, okay? We think of the word repent as the action word and the word believe as sort of the mind word, the cognitive word. Actually, in the original language, it's exactly the opposite. Okay? So when Paul here is talking about the idea, when he says set your minds, he's talking about the idea of repentance here. Uh, to repent is not to do an action in terms of you're going this way. We've, uh, this is the way I used to describe it when I was a youth pastor, and I wish I hadn't. I wish I could actually repent from, I have repented from this. Um, is we, we go this way, and then we stop, and we turn, and we go this way. That's what repentance is. That, that's actually not what repentance is. That's an action, okay? Repentance in the Bible, anytime you see that concept, it is not an action. It is a, it's a thing that your mind does. It's the Greek word metanoia, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. It means transformation, but very specifically, it means a transformation of your mind. It means you change the way you think about something. You change the way you think about something that then results in your actions being changed too, right? So repentance alone is not the action thing. Repentance is a mind thing. Jesus said repent and believe. Repent is the mind thing that results in belief. That's the action thing, right? Repentance results in action. Uh, Setting your minds results in belief or living that thing out. And so here, in this verse that we just read, Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. He's saying that you you can't just will yourself to sort of do enough action to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and stop sinning. He says you must replace them within your mind, realizing that there is a greater delight. He's saying you take all of that energy and effort that you're trying to put toward, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just killing that sin in your life. You take all of that energy and all of that effort and you focus it on setting your mind and your heart where Christ is. 
You set your mind and your heart where Christ is. The way we say this at my church a lot down in Spring Hill is we say we, we inhale grace so that we can exhale grace. And really, the first part of that is what Paul's talking about here. We breathe in the goodness of the grace of God. We set our minds on that constantly. In fact, if you look at the Greek words that he uses here, he says, set your minds. What you'll see is this is not a one-time setting your mind. Okay? This is a uh, over and over and over as a rhythm and pattern in your life of setting your mind on things above where Christ is. Over and over as a pattern of your life. In fact, not just over and over, but constantly as sort of an undercurrent or maybe even an umbrella, say it that way, uh, in your life. You're continually, that's a good way to say it, setting your minds on things above where Christ is. It's the idea of um, to use sort of a, a, an agrarian term here, it's the idea of rumination. You know, rumination are like a cow chewing its cud. Uh, the Bible even paints that picture from time to time. Of, that's what it looks like to set your minds on Christ, on things above where Christ is. It's a, you, 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 you take it in and you chew it and you get as many nutrients out as you can and you swallow and then <laughs> grow, really grow. And then in the, in you, you, you ruminate and then it comes back up and then you, you chew more to get more nutrients and it goes down. It comes back up and you get more nutrients and it goes, right? That's the idea. Like you're just continually setting your mind on it. You're gaining as many nutrients and as much out of it as you can, setting your mind on things above where Christ is. Now let me just pause and get super practical for a second. I don't want to be too elementary here, but, but, but doing that requires that we spend time daily in the Bible. Right? Uh, doing that requires that we spend time listening to the voice of God. And so, man, if, if the only time you're ever hearing the Word of God, the, the Word of God is the voice of God, by the way. Uh, if the only time you're ever hearing the Word of God, the voice of God is here on Sunday, um, or as you listen to a song on Christian radio, man, that... That's not, enough. that's not what Paul's getting at here. And so if that's you, and you go, man, I just keep struggling with this sin. I can't figure out why. Maybe it's because you're not setting your mind on things above where Christ is. What you in, it's why we say this at our church. What you inhale, you will exhale. If, you, if what you're exhaling is sin in your life because you're continually bowing at a root idol, it's because you may not be inhaling the voice of God enough rumination continually set your mind on things above where Christ is and so I would just say to you super practically and pastorally really quick at the risk of being too elementary if you don't have a a time and a place and a plan for every day spending time in the word you need that You, you need to take some time before the end of the service to find a pen somewhere around you and write down 6 a.m. or for some of you, 9.30 a.m. 9.30 a.m., uh, I'm going to sit in my chair here or what, whatever. It's fine. Date, time, plan. That's what you do, okay? And if you don't have that, you, you desperately need that. If you don't, you'll never be killing sin because what, what, ha- what, that, what that actually communicates is your greatest delight is not hearing from the voice of God, Right? And so what Paul's pointing us to is finding the supremacy of Christ and our greatest delight, setting our minds. And so what happens, let me read you this quote, actually. I almost got ahead of myself. Here's a quote from a guy named Thomas Chalmers. He says this exact thing that Paul's talking about. The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. It's Christ. Paul says we do that 
through continually, rumination, continually setting our minds on things above where Christ is. And what, we, what happens then is, so, so that's the first phrase in verse 1. Or verse, that was actually in verse 2. What happens is when we set our minds there, that that sort of attitude or rhythm of our lives every day really stirs us up. That mindset stirs us up and energizes us to the other phrase. Seek, he says, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Now here's what Paul's getting to here. He's saying, look, we don't just sort of think about Jesus a lot and then not even worry about the the actual practical level sins in our lives. You know, we don't just think about Jesus a lot with the expense of that. We actually also have to, have to seek the things that are above. We have to, we have to actively move, our, take steps, practical steps, to work out what God is working in. Do you see that? To work out what God is working in. So seeking the things that are above is our responsibility. It, it's this kind of idea right here. Um, in 1944, there was a, uh, a Japanese battleship called the, the, it was the battleship Shinano. And uh, this ship was said to be unsinkable. Uh, it was a, uh, this, this gigantic ship that had been fortified with iron and it was said to, to, to be, like the Titanic in many ways, it was said to be unsinkable. Well, there was nearby a uh, U.S. submarine called the USS Archerfish. And um, as they approached, the USS Archerfish fired one short-range torpedo at the, uh, the gigantic, you know, uh, Japanese ship Shinano. The captain of the ship or whatever, the admiral, saw this torpedo coming on radar and said, you know what, don't even worry about it. It's his, uh, some of his, um, you know, uh, kind of secondary guys said, we should close the watertight doors. And this guy said, no, uh, you know, don't worry about it. It'll be like a gnat bouncing off of a tree. It won't e- it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Well, because they didn't close the watertight doors, this one short-range torpedo from this tiny little um, submarine, the USS Archerfish, penetrated the, uh, the, the iron walls of this gigantic battleship. And because they didn't close the watertight doors, this gigantic, unsinkable battleship sank to the bottom of the ocean. See, that's what happens in our lives when we don't do what Paul just now said. When we don't actually make a little effort to work out what God is working into us, what happens is sin will actually burn us to the ground and sink our lives. Paul's saying here, hey, 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 it's, man, yes, the foundation of all of this is not bowing before root idols. Therefore, man, we got to set our minds on things above. But what he's saying is you have responsibility. It, it's, it's, it's to work out what God's working in. He's saying you close the watertight doors of your life. And so something like this, like teenagers, if you know that you're struggling with, man, things with your boyfriend or girlfriend that you know are not a God-honoring, then, then are you alone with them in your room or are you alone with them in a car by yourself? Absolutely not. Now that's, that's, just, that's just smart, right? It's closing the watertight doors of your life. Men, if you struggle, or, or, or women, uh, statistics tell us that uh, there's a, a, a the, 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 the highest uh, rate of growth when it comes to cons- uh, consuming pornography uh, is, is with young women. And so men or women, if you struggle with pornography, then men, you need to close the watertight. Yes, you need to rum- ruminate on Jesus. Set your mind on things above. You need to close the watertight doors of your life. So what does it look like? 
It looks like, man, maybe I need to put a, uh, you know, some accountability software on my phone. Maybe that needs, means I, I, you know, I need to, to have my computer in a certain place and just decide. I'm going to close the watertight doors in my life by, by, no, by not looking at my computer beyond, or my phone beyond 9 o'clock at night or, or whatever that might be, right? That's simply closing the watertight doors of your life. And so some of you, some of you, some of you, uh, there's, there's sin in your life that keeps bubbling up from the fire of a root idol. It keeps bubbling. It keeps bubbling. Yes, you need to set your mind on things above where Christ is. Continually. Also, man, you need to close the watertight door. So maybe a next step from you out of today's sermon is you need to decide what's the watertight door that I need to close in my life. Right? I've got a plan already for how I'm going to spend time continually setting my mind on things above. But, I, but here's my plan for closing the watertight door in my life. Man, you know what happens, guys? Be, when, when we do that, we take those steps. Because of the cross, those things are reality in our lives. When we set our gaze on Jesus continually, what we begin to realize in our lives is that we don't have to bow down to the root idol of power. Because we have the whole, because of the cross, we have the Holy Spirit in us. And, on, and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us, right? And we have that power. We, we, we don't have to bow the idol of control because God is sovereign and he, and he has numbered our days. And so that's why Paul would say in Philippians 4, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious for anything. Jesus would say in Matthew 6, consider the lilies and how I clothe them. How, how am I going to clothe? I'm gonna, so much more am I going to clothe you, right? Uh, we, we don't bow at the idol of control because God is sovereign. He's in control, ultimate control. We don't have to bow at the idol of pleasure because of the cross. Because you know what? Uh, being united with Jesus is the deepest, most satisfy, satisfying comfort and joy we can ever find in our lives. And the cross can make that a reality. We don't have, have to bow at the idol of approval because God delights in us. He delights in us and rejoices in us. In fact, Zephaniah 3, I'll, there's verse, verse 17, I'm not going to read it, but it says he sings over us. That's <laughs> so good, man. He delights in us so much that he stretched out his arms and gave his life for us. So you see, we don't have to bow at root idols. We don't have to bow at the, at the flame of those things that produce the smoke of surface level sin. Because of the cross, we bow at the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I love that song that we sang just, just before the message. We sang these words, turn your eyes upon Jesus. This is what Paul's getting at in this whole text. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What happens? What happens then? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And my prayer for us is that we'll take next steps from today's sermon practically, closing watertight doors, uh, figuring out what those root idols are in our lives, ruminating on uh, the goodness of Jesus and his voice in our lives. My, my prayer is that we'll do that. But that more than anything, the thing that stirs up all that in us is that we turn our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what this text points us to in Colossians 3. So that's my prayer, okay?
Hey, uh, I'm going to pray for us in just a second after I pray. Um, we'll have prayer partners on either side of the, the, the stage here at the crosses. If you want to respond by coming, writing down a prayer request, placing it on the cross, you want somebody to pray with you, they'll be here. If you want to take communion, there's elements on either side. If you're a Christian person, you can come and take communion here. If you're not a Christian, instead of taking communion, would you take the Savior at which the communion points today? That's my prayer for us. Let me pray, and then we're going to stand. We're going to respond as we sing. And if you need to respond here, you can do that as well. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, and that when we delight in you, God, the things of earth begin to be strangely dim. And the things that promise so strongly to satisfy that never do, those things fade away into, uh, in, into the background of our lives. And the thing that really ultimately satisfies every deep longing we have comes forefront in our lives. And when that happens, you are most glorified and we find the most joy in our lives. So God, may that be true in us today. And may we do what it takes for that to be true. God, by your grace, would you make that reality in our hearts? In Jesus' name.